So here's an interesting pivot for you. You have a business that is a not-for-profit that is all about helping nations around the world that don't have great health care get supplies that will change the ability to deliver health care. And you've been giving it to them from all the hospital supplies that are left unused here in the U.S. And you've been delivering millions of dollars worth of this stuff and saving all kinds of lives all around the world. What happens when COVID hits and you have to change everything? So that's what happened to Danielle Booten. And Danielle is not only an incredible reinventor herself, you're going to love her energy. And she comes out of occupational therapy and decided she didn't want to do that anymore. And then got into this crazy thing of literally, as she says, the idea came to her when she was, she had taken a trip after losing her job and she took a trip to Africa and she ran into a surgeon who was so upset because she couldn't deliver the kind of care that she wanted to, to the locals because she didn't have the right kind of very basic, uh, what do you want to call it? Supplies, medical supplies. And then Danielle, being Danielle, came back to New York and started dumpster diving in the hospital dumpsters to see what they were throwing out. And indeed she discovered they're throwing out all this great stuff that they can't use in the US because of the way that we have regulations, but that is perfectly fine to use abroad in places that may not have, be able to have those kind of strict, strict standards. Anyway, so she's doing that and then COVID hits. And guess what happens? So I want to bring to you the wonderful, always innovative, always upbeat, always super energized, you're going to love, Danielle Booten. Here she is. So Danielle, I'm so glad we're finally doing this. How are you? Oh, I'm good, Leslie. It's such a treat to be back in touch with you. So what we want to talk about is pivoting in the pandemic. And since you are such a pioneer in this area of like inventing service where there was no service, maybe just give everybody a little, a little intro to what your business is. And then we're going to talk about how you had a pivot in the pandemic. And then we'll come back and talk about your personal reinvention, since this is all about reinvention. So uh, what Afia does, and Afia means health in the Kiswahili language, is we rescue and collect medical supplies that would otherwise be discarded, sterile, still usable, non-expired, also biomedical equipment, wheelchairs, hospital beds, and we bring them to our warehouse where thousands of volunteers help us to sort and prepare shipments. And then we send these supplies via air or sea freight containers to 83 nations to try to change healthcare abroad by bringing and building access to supplies. Without products the needed, without the products needed to deliver care, it's impossible to practice medicine. So that's really the overarching objective of the work. 
So talk about what um, countries do you send stuff to? And just, I know you sent an ambulance one time. You told yes, me to hate yes, it. Yes. So give them an idea of like the scope and so that they understand. And I remember you also telling me that amazing story was about the woman you met and she couldn't save, was it her mother? Cause she didn't have the right tubing for something. There are, there are so many remarkable stories. I, I, one of the more recent ones that right before COVID happened, I was in the Cape Town townships and I was doing an assessment of products needed there. And there were these extraordinary elders. They were all apartheid survivors and Leslie, they were in diapers. And these were cognitively intact older adults. And I would sit with them with a translator and I would repeatedly say, tell me why you're in a diaper. You are intact. You can um, move your arms and your legs. Why are you in a diaper all day? And they said, we don't have a wheelchair. We don't have a cane or a walker. We have no way to move. Our children leave during the day to try to find work or to go to school. And so the only way that we can deal with us having to go to the bathroom during the day is to use a diaper. And these are elders who have gone through the most unimaginable of circumstances. And now here they sit in diapers because they don't have a walker, a wheelchair, or cane. And we came home and sent a 40-foot container filled with ambulation devices for this, this amazing non-for-profit that services the townships to distribute to elders in their home so that they don't need to use diapers again. And at the simplest level, that is what like the introduction of a product looks like. Uh, hospice in the Bahamas reached out to us and said, we have the building, but we don't have, and there's no hospice here anywhere on the island. We need beds and we need products in order to offer hospice services for the islanders. And we were able to send them the entire setup for a inpatient hospice so that people would have a place to die with a sense of dignity and control. And so the beauty of Afia is that we just, we match what people on the ground are asking for with the supplies we have so that they can enact some significant changes. Awesome. And so let's talk about pivoting in the pandemic because how did that work for you? Because you are collecting things and you are, I thought of you immediately like, yike, because you're, getting, yeah. you know, before we knew that this was just airborne, we thought it was, you know, we didn't know how COVID was, was transmitted. We were wiping down our, you know, our groceries. What were people doing with, and then were they even going into the hospitals and being able to give you product? And then did you have to clean it or how did that all unfold for you? Uh, it was it was uh, one of the most horrible few months um, I've ever experienced, and because there was such uncertainty, um, and and with all that uncertainty, people didn't know what the guidelines or the rules were. So that was problem one. Problem two is the biggest hospitals in New York donate to us, and all of a sudden the pivot was. By the third week in March, Leslie, we were getting calls from those who donate to us saying, we need supplies, what do you have? And Afia has lots of supplies. PPE is just one of those sets of supplies. And we started bringing supplies to those 
enormous hospitals, NYP, Montefiore, NYU, who were donating to us. And if someone had said to me five years ago that you would be delivering medical supplies to the very hospitals that make your functionality abroad possible, I would have said, you gotta be kidding, that's never going to happen. So that was the start. And then hospitals started to get their sea legs. They started to become incredibly resourceful. The amount of snake oil salesmen who showed up during this was unfathomable. I, I couldn't believe that on the heels of people dying and the wild exposure that healthcare providers had to COVID, there were so many people taking advantage, trying to sell suboptimum equipment, trying to get to market. And so we had teams of people come to us and say, we're gonna be your vetting team. Um, and so these angels, attorneys and folks with big business acumen came and made sure that we only had in-house or we were only purchasing. It was the first time we ever purchased supplies that were at par with what people needed to stay protected. And I quickly started to shift to the federally qualified health centers and to the community agencies, the homeless shelters, the food pantries, because they were the second front line. You know, there, there were two front lines, really. There were the front lines of the nursing home and the hospital teams. And then there were these folks treating the poorest patients in the community, and they had no coverage. There were pictures of a public hospital in the Bronx where their staff was wearing garbage bags as PPE. And we decided that we were going to help them. And the need was so desperate that a team in Virginia called me and said, we have a warehouse. We found three year expired N95 masks in our warehouse, thousands of them. And I said, hold on a sec, I'll get right back to you. And I called one of the centers and I said, this is what they're offering me. I, on a good day, I would say no way, but I'm asking you and they said, anything is better than nothing. Um, and so the need for supplies here was enormous. And one of the most beautiful moments for me, um, because you know this, I'm an occupational therapist. So I think of products in a very different way was Harlem United, an amazing federally qualified health center in New York City said to us, not only do we need PPE, but we need wheelchairs and walkers and canes so that if our clients don't have a risk for falling, they won't end up in COVID-laden ERs. They also asked for nasal cannulas and for oxygen concentrators so they could treat people. They started to ask for the composite of supplies needed to be a maximum treating center during this pandemic. And that was the beginning of the work. We ended up delivering over 4 million units of PPE. Um, but I, I really focused on the underdog, the sites that were on no one's radar, but were heading for trouble because they treated the greatest risk um, in the demographic population. It's interesting because I thought of you when that first started and we were down here in New Orleans and when we were seeing that these, these you know, doctors and everybody had no PPE, we started a, a little website down here where we went around collecting mm. all the PPE that was, you know, in schools, on shelves, in the, in the craft class or um, dentist's office, doctor's office. And we actually, you know, for us, it was, you know, we got a lot out to them. We did that for about four or five months. And then we had um, Tulane medical students took it over. 
But um, that was just that's such fantastic. a horrible, horrible moment. That uh, So that's amazing. So you ended up working for the U.S. That's incredible. Yeah, and- we really, we, we pivoted. We had to pivot. And then we started helping and we're still there. Navajo Nation, we're working with Core Response. We worked with Sean Penn's group in Haiti. Leslie, remember like back in 2010 when Sean was running this incredible camp of 75,000 people recently homeless from that earthquake, um, he has a way of stepping forward. And now his work with Ann Lee and Navajo Nation is extraordinary. And we are working with them and with Hopkins um, on getting supplies into Navajo Nation. We just sent a million masks there and they are building quarantine huts for elders. And, but the quarantine huts have no beds and no mattresses and no blankets and it is freezing at night. Um, and, and my world of work before starting Afia was in elder care. So to see these pictures, we started sending convoys of trucks of medical furniture that would be needed to keep quarantine elders safe um, out there. And we, um, I think we've made an enormous impact by the movement of those supplies during COVID. So we've really covered a fair amount of the United States. We've done a lot in Florida, we've done a fair amount in New Jersey, but New York has, New York, I have to say, one of the most impossible moments for me was at the end of March. Um, I give a lot of talks at schools, at high schools and in middle schools, really to kind of activate young students who have the capacity to make a big commitment to this world and to find their sea legs in this aspect of like philanthropy and leadership. And, um, and we're lucky that we get a lot of them as interns, but I started getting emails from kids saying my mom or my dad is an ICU doctor or is an ICU nurse at X hospital. Can I please drive to your warehouse and get an N95 mask? And those destroyed me. I mean, those really destroyed me that here were these children out there, resourceful, trying to find a way to keep their parents alive and safe. And to this day, I still can't read those emails because I would just sit and I would just bawl. Uh, I just, it really, you know, uh, as a mother, it really hit me very hard. It's amazing, right? That was just such a basic, I wonder when that story is written, um, how that, I mean, a First of all, I think it's reorienting our supply chains and realizing that, no, you can't let these vital things be made abroad when you don't know what's coming to you. Because I heard one report, I don't know if it's true, I'm sure somebody will write about it, that the Chinese actually said, oh, well, we know all your masks are made over here, so please be quiet about this. And um, who knows if that's propaganda or not, I have no idea, but... It just seems wise. <laughs> like there's uh, certain it's things happening. It's you know? happening. It's definitely. I totally agree with you. And it's happening. And you know, like the other the other thing that we did that I think was um was really interesting was we activated the makers. We asked people who had time, who could sew, to start making fabric masks for us to be able to get into homeless shelters, so that people who are residents in shelters could have a mask that could be dipped in water and soap and reused. So we activated that group. We had people making face shields for us out of page protectors so that we could have folks in different community agencies covered. And then Leslie, one of my favorites was, and this is where I'm, I'm 
at my hat tip to all of my OT training, um, I looked at the non-sterile OR drapes that we had in the warehouse. We're talking about over 100,000 drapes that are used during surgery. And I started to feel them. And I said, these are the same materials that we use for procedural gowns. And at the time, gowns were costing $5 to $11 a unit which is outrageous and it's disposable. It's a single use gown that everyone has seen a practitioner in at some point or another. So we started a maker's group where they were, somebody created a pattern for us and we turned those into gowns and we sent tens of thousands to a maker's group in Port-au-Prince in Haiti so that they could become the gown makers for the hospital there so that that would be the way they could secure their PPE was from this group of women making gowns. So it is, it is created out of necessity, a need to innovate and imagine what doesn't exist in lots of different ways and how that modeling could benefit people who need work and have skills abroad to make a difference in their healthcare system as well. It's amazing what, what rises to the top. That's incredible. So you're like the Scarlett O'Hara of uh, a PPE, right? That's what she did, remember? She grabbed the drapes and she made her dress so that she would look like she was still a winner. So yeah, that's, there, that's your comparative. You could just say that it was your Scarlett O'Hara minute moment. So if let's talk a little bit about your history as a reinventor yourself, because you're such an incredible reinventor. Talk a little bit about how you got into this and what did you do originally and how did this come about for you? So I, uh, 13 years ago, I was in my mid forties, uh, no, early forties. And I, um, I had a significant senior executive job at Oxford Health Plans that was then acquired by United Healthcare. And it just was not with the expansion and the acquisition, it did not fit what I wanted to do any longer. And I inherited the leadership of health services for like half the country for Medicare uh, service delivery. And uh, it was ready to make a change. I was really ready to make a change. And I kept making that clear. And ultimately I received a severance package that I used um, in part to launch Afia. But the in-between there was I went to Africa. And I decided my three children were uh, at camp and it was a perfect time for me to get away from me. It made everyone in my family very uncomfortable. I, I was divorced that I was, instead of looking for a job immediately, I was going to get on the next plane and go to Tanzania. Um, but there was something about that that just felt right. And you know, this is one of those lessons learned you have to be very, very careful in creating something that doesn't yet exist in which voice you're going to invite to your life table. And I chose the one that sat inside of me that said, this is the right decision. Everyone around me said, this is crazy. You really need to be meeting with headhunters. And I, I trusted my own voice. And um, there in the Serengeti, I saw a woman bawling her eyes out. Uh, uh, sitting at a table with a glass of wine. And I sat down next to her and I said, are you okay? What's happening here? And she said, I am the woman's health doctor in London. I have a panel waiting list that goes on 
a mile long. Um, and I gave a month of my practice up to come here and volunteer and do medical mission work. I can't do anything because there are no supplies in any of the clinics that I'm working in. I'm watching children die. If I had an IV starter kit or IV bags, I could save them and I can't do anything here. And there are moments in each of our lives where we hear the story of another and we have this big compassionate response and it moves us. And then there are times where there is something that like rumbles inside and says, you have to do something about this. And that's what happened to me. Um, and, you know, I think at any, at any moment of transitional change, it is vitally important to take stock of what you can bring forward that can help you transform all you don't know. I knew nothing about international global health or warehousing or shipping, but I did know that I can lead and I can bring programs to life that don't exist. And I can engage others and inspire a community of people to get behind a cause. And I had done that before. So I came home, I went through the tunnels of most of the biggest hospitals in New York. And I would hear, hey lady, what are you doing down here in the garbage? And I was basically dumpster diving, Leslie, in, like, uh, in the tunnels of New York's hospitals saying, I wanna see what the garbage looks like. And I was astonished to learn that, and this is all because of federal regulations. This is not hospital-based or insurance-based. If supplies still wrapped have been exposed to the patient in a room with a patient, operating room, patient care room, delivering a baby, anything that was in the room has to be discarded because there could be any kind of germ infectivity that is carried with that exposure. So we're talking about millions and millions of pounds of supplies that have to be discarded because of this. If you have a death with dignity at home, no one will come and pick up those supplies and reuse it with another patient. And it goes on and on. And I decided I was going to start an organization that collects and rescues these supplies and figure out a way to get volunteers to help me sort and then delivered. And Tanzania was, was so in front of me and on me the entire time I launched. And our first container within four months of launch went to Haiti. And I figured out how to build partnerships, how to figure out the right way to do this. I'm still learning 13 years later, but we've gone from having no warehouse except for my garage. I literally started this in my garage in Westchester County to now we are in almost 40,000 square feet of warehouse space. And we've, we've sent over 11 million pounds of supplies to sites in 83 nations. And um, I'm glad I listened to my voice. I still listen to my voice. There are a lot of people who say, that's not a good idea, that's too risky. I mean, a good example of was during COVID. There were all these forms, these forms that people had to fill out to have the privilege of donating PPE to some of these hospitals. I said, I am not filling out a form. I will not stand by and watch this bureaucratic system become the wall between us getting help to the people taking care of people who are highly infectious. So we would show up at an ER, call the nurse we knew and say, come out with your team. We're giving you guys boxes of PPE. And that's how we delivered. So it, it is about creating systems that make sense, that, that help the team that you have an intention to help. And it's been an amazing ride and it's still happening. It's still growing.
So what's the most unexpected thing that happened for you? What, what came out of it that you were surprised by? Out of the most recent pivot or the work in general? Well, tell me the work in general, and then is there anything out of the recent pivot? I think um, I think what has um, been extraordinary for me is how many people are um, looking for ways to have meaning and impact in their lives, and that this work for volunteers and for donors and partner agencies, it speaks to so many people on so many levels and um, the response and the generosity has been astounding to me. Um, so I, I think there is a big call and a big space that needs to be filled where people can find a way to bring what they are gifted in or drawn to, to helping another. And uh, there's something about helping people you will never know and see, but being viscerally involved that speaks to thousands in a way I never could have anticipated. And um, I think that's exquisite. Um, during COVID, um, I have to say that, um, that uh, what really came home for me was um, not, not necessarily following the rules. <laughs> so I don't think rules make a lot of sense during times of crisis. And that was one example. Another was there was a chief resident at a top hospital in New York City who called us at 11 o'clock one night and said, my entire ER has zero and 95 masks. I'm going back in tomorrow and I don't know what to do. And instead of calling the hospital and working through it, we literally said to him, be outside with your doorman at 5 a.m. We're bringing them to your building. And we gave him 595 masks to get through the next like 24 to 48 hours. And he and his doorman ran to the ER to deliver for the morning shift. And so I, I think that if you keep your eye on the target of what's important, you figure out how to act in accordance to just that. It's interesting. We didn't run into any of that. Well, because the girl that I was working with, she just did what you did. She just, we just delivered it to them. There exactly. was no, she was, she was a medical supplier. I was very lucky. One of the first people I met um, down here in New Orleans happened to be a woman who worked in medical supplies. And so she knew all the doctors and all the ER people. And so when we would get stuff off of shelves, she would just go in in the morning and deliver it to them. I didn't even know there was paperwork. So that's incredible. And it's amazing what, you know, what, what's interesting about what you did too, is it's found money. It's found stuff. It's, it's stuff that people were going to throw away. And it suddenly had a second life somewhere else, not necessarily for COVID, but for your whole organization, this stuff was going into the garbage. Exactly. And, and, you know, someone once said to me, well, if it's, are there germs? I, I think, honestly, I think we are very safe. We have sent millions of pounds of supplies. People are doing really well with what we sent. And I offer this up as a story of, um, I just want supplies in sites that need it. There was a woman, I was asked to come into an emergency C-section um, 
in the north of Tanzania and their anesthesia machine wasn't working and they gave her a spinal and the doctor opened and said, oh my gosh, we don't have sutures to close. Oh, and I said, no. how could you open a woman oh, and not have sutures Jesus. to close? And they said, well, this is what we do. And they had a four by four piece of gauze and they started pulling all of these the pieces of like threads off of the piece of gauze, threaded in a needle and said, Jesus. if we do this enough, it's gonna hold. This is horrendous. So every suture we collect, and I see in our warehouse that has is going to have a second life abroad. This is all I can think about is that's going to change. You change one woman's story, you change an entire family's stories for generations to come. See, and I thought it was a regulation problem. I didn't realize it was just the hospitals and they're just afraid of an aerosol. Um, oh no, no, it is federally regulated. Oh, they it is federally are, regulated. It is, it is. Oh, and ah. so they are abiding. But people who say then, well, if it's supposed to be garbage here, why isn't it garbage there? Right. Our our standards are I this is a whole other conversation. Okay. okay. But I think this is very safe. Um, and it is a game changer for sites abroad. It is a right. game changer. Right. Right. So as we pull into the end here, Danielle, as we're talking about um, your education, you really took about three things that you knew you could do. You say you knew that you were a good organizer, right? Right. You knew that you could figure things out. What else did it take that, because this is the problem with women, um, women often, you know, they, they meet six of the seven requirements and they want to go back to school to get the seventh before they apply, right? Oh, well, then this is a perfect moment to say that best right. is the enemy of good. So okay. I I can, um, I can tolerate good. I'm, I'm happy with good. I have no delusions of grandeur that I'm going to create the perfect warehouse. My warehouse, somebody, <laughs> somebody once, somebody once walked in and said about the warehouse, he said, this is like, this is like a warehouse on acid. <laughs> okay. right. Right. I'll take it. Um, you know, we do gorgeous work, but the bottom line here is that um, I have no expectations of things needing to be perfect. I want it to be really good. And so I give myself a lot of leeway there. Also, Leslie, when, when things are just falling apart, my staff knows that they will come at me with like, okay, these are the four things that are just like not working out well at all. And I find a way to infuse humor because I don't think that when people are crazy stressed and obsessed with details that they can't change in that moment, it helps anyone. Mm. And so I will have meetings and people will burst out laughing and we will all just look at each other and go, this is, this is about as bad as it gets and laugh and then say, who's got an idea? And then it opens us up to the next range of possibilities. And, and the other piece that I wanna say here is I did not make, I invested my severance package in the launch of Athia, okay. but I did not make a pure, clean financial leap. I consulted, in the area that I had left, I had left an area where I could earn a 
decent consultative salary on going into health systems and looking at how they were rolling out programs for older adults. And I used that part-time to help me fund the beginning of Athia because I hear I was a divorced mother of three children and I needed to make money. And I did not fool myself to think that I'm going to leave this job and all of a sudden make money if it's not for profit. It took me a solid year to figure out the financial modeling around Athia so that I could actually start to draw a salary. And I think we have to build a bridge. Who did you consult for that? Did you know, did you go to like one of these groups that consults, um, with, you know, people helping them to figure out financials, because you had not been an entrepreneur before, right? Right. Um, I, I actually, I called on people in my world who were really smart and really capable around financial modeling. I had friends. Um, and I think about one friend who lives in our town who, who you know, was a CFO previously for a big music company. Um, and he sat with me and taught okay. me modeling. Um, okay. And so I, I say tap into the people that you know. I called people in my old professional world and said, if anyone needs somebody to come in and do some consultative work, I'm letting you know I'm available and free. I used my networks really well. I didn't just do online network managing. I called everyone I know to say, who do you know who can help me with figuring out like shipping documents and the legal aspect of right. maritime law? Right. Who right. do you know? who needs a consultant so that I can make money while I'm trying to build all of this. And a lot of pro bono help came my way. And, and um, it has been, uh, I continue to do that to this day. I mean, I really continue to do that to this day. I, um, Harvard Business School alum came in to do a pro bono um, project with us. And to this day, the person that was part of that team is now my mentor and I am will be grateful forever that I have this person in my life that is helping me think strategically and wisely as I build new programs moving forward. So I think we need we need a community of help. So mm-hmm. and everyone has that community. You just have to think more creatively around it. And people were willing to jump in to help you. Because you asked. Because but you I had- asked and because people want to help. Mm-hmm. People are hungry for meaning. And yes, so this yes. is something else I've learned. It's not just, I need help. It's that my need for help is most certainly matched by someone with a unique skill set that has no idea where to bring that. But somebody coming to them and saying, what you do really well is what I need help with. And they light up. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I can see that. People do want to help. I think that's the big shocker for me coming out of corporate. Were you shocked by that? Because nobody when I was in corporate asked to help me (laughs) with anything. (laughs) No one ever said, how can I help you? Did you find that? Like people were just very incredibly generous as you got started? The the draw to altruism and generosity is what has been like remarkable to me. I mean, we even have people who are pre-arraignment and out of prison doing parole and probation work with us. And I I watch them come alive as well, Leslie, where, you know, all of a sudden being needed for something that is bigger than all of us and being able to make an impact is transformative for them. So yes, 
I, I think we, I think finding the lock that matches our giving key is the challenge for people. And when it fits, it's exquisite. You know, it's interesting. It reminds me of those studies that showed that when kids who grew up in poverty were asked to give to other people, that's when they found their voices. And they didn't, you know, they thought they were always on the receiving end, but as soon as they were able to give, it changed everything for them. I so think it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think that's very true. So anything else that you want to tell women who are thinking or inspired by what you did in, you know, going from a profiting life to not for profit, but you make yourself, you're supporting your family, right? You, you actually do draw a salary and you can support your family doing this. So it's not. Yes. Okay. That's great. And I think um, anyone that wants to go into the non-for-profit space, um, it is a business. It is, um, you know, I remember uh, when I was working in managed care and non-for-profits would come in and I would say, I have to report back on why this is why this is an important and vital service for this company to invest in. So give me that information. And they would say, we're helping people. And I remember saying, I need so much more than that. Like I, I need data. I need information. I need facts. I need implications. And so I, I think that if people are going to enter a non-for-profit workspace, they really have to be prepared to be equally accountable as they would be in a for-profit space and equally planful. This is a business. It's a business that doesn't make a profit, but it is a business. And if you don't see it that way, you won't be able to draw enough income to pay a staff and an office and to generate the outcome that you really hope to create. Amazing. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Danielle. As always, you're an inspiration to me. You always have been. I think of you whenever there's a crisis out there. I think of you a lot whenever I see headlines. I'm always like, how is Danielle responding to this? Because I know you're going to be there. I know you've seen the same headlines and you've your wheels in your head have gone around and thought, how can I help with this? Well, thank you. No, it's and wonderful. you were one of the first to cover our story, the whole reinvention. So, so yeah, we go back way, go way, back. way back. I love that. So congratulations. I love the pivot. I love um, everything you do. And I hope that people, where can people find um, you and your product so that they can follow you? Uh, they can find us on afiafoundation.org. Um, and all of our social media handles are there and we would love to widen and increase our community. So if people want to reach out, please do. They can email us at info at afiafoundation.org as well. And you're up in the Westchester area and you often do you take, um, interns. I think you have a lot of, or you did, you used to have a lot of kids. Uh, who we are taking with you. Yes, this summer we are planning on a big internship program. We have very few, Leslie, because of the restrictions that oh, we're made. Oh, right, right. I we're in-house. I know, I know. Right. So, uh-huh. But we're finding creative ways to do that. So if, if people want to get involved, we would love to welcome you into our circle. So please right. get in touch with us. You'll figure it out. Well, Danielle, thank you as always and have a great day. You too, Leslie. Thank you. Thank you.
So I hope you enjoyed listening to Danielle's story. I just love her story all the time because I do watch the news and I do think of Danielle all the time because I know she's going to be there. She's going to figure out some way to get in there and change the world to her advantage so that she can help them. And I love the fact that she's handing boxes of PPE to surgeons during COVID. And that is just, it's, it's just an amazing thing about what one woman can do. Look at that. So if you ever think that you can't do what you want to do, it ain't true, as we all know. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I hope you will listen to more of Reinvent Yourself. And I hope that you will subscribe. Give us some stars. Um, I hope you'll give us five stars if you enjoy our conversations here. I hope you'll pass us along to friends or anybody you know who's trying to reinvent and needs some inspiration and some tactical advice. And if you would like more of that, come over to CoveyClub.com. And that's where we hang out and really do a lot of the change work um, that's needed. We have masterminds. We have a build your biz uh, class for entrepreneurs. We have all kinds of coaching. And then we have our regular content and our teaching that we do uh, during the week. You will learn, you will grow, and you will find that thing that turns you on and makes you excited about getting out of bed every Monday morning. So come join us and come back and listen to the next Reinvent Yourself. Take care.